The final command Jesus gave to his disciples was to go and make more disciples. We come together once a week to worship God together, to be encouraged and taught for an hour or so. But what we are to be doing constantly as an act of obedience is not coming to church to worship, but going out from the church to make disciples. This is an important way we show our love for God and our love for other people. It is unloving not to bring someone to Jesus, the source of love and life. Since that is our command, every disciple can lead someone closer to Jesus. We all have that ability. But to guide someone on any journey, I can't just know the destination. I also have to know where they currently are. It's not especially helpful for me to give a person directions from the Oakdale High V store to Hartwood Church in Oakdale if the person I'm guiding is currently in San Francisco. If I'm going to walk with someone on their journey, I need to know where I am as well. Jesus said in Matthew 15:14, "If the blind guide the blind, both will fall into a pit." This series, Sheep to Shepherd, will teach us to discover where I am and others are on the journey to Jesus. We start at the point furthest from Jesus, unbelief. A disciple shepherds the unbeliever to Jesus. I believe Jesus is God-made man who lived perfectly, died, and came to life again. The sacrifice for the disobedience for all people and the true king of heaven and earth. In our passage today, people did not believe that Jesus was the promised savior and king sent from God. But even that is closer to where some people are today. Today, a person might not even believe Jesus was a historical person. If I want to shepherd someone to Jesus, I have to realize that the unbeliever is far away from Jesus. Like the person driving from San Francisco, California to Oakdale, Minnesota, my first guidance is going to be general, and they will take quite a bit of time to travel the road. Get on Interstate 80 East and travel for 1,800 miles to Des Moines, Iowa, and then I'll give you the next directions. The Holy Spirit can certainly move in a person in an instant. But typically what we see in the lives of people today and in conversion stories in the Bible is that people who came to faith in God were already on a path toward God with varying levels of understanding. At Pentecost, everyone was in Jerusalem to worship God. The Ethiopian eunuch was already reading the prophet Isaiah. Cornelius and his household were already God-fearers. In Mark chapter 12, when Jesus and the scribe agree that the two greatest commands are love God with all you are and love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says to the scribe, "You are near to the kingdom of God." In John chapter 7, however, Jesus is shepherding unbelieving people, people who are not close to the kingdom of God. Let's see how he did it. In John 7:1 through 19, How does Jesus shepherd the unbeliever? John 7:1 through 19. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festival of shelters was near, so his brothers said to him, "Leave here and go to Judea so your disciples can see your works that you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." 
for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going up to this festival, because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said these things, he stayed in Galilee. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, Where is he? And there were a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he is deceiving the people. Still, nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up to the temple and began to, pre- began to teach. Then the Jews were amazed and said, How is this man so learned, since he hasn't been trained? Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. The one who speaks on his own seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Didn't Moses give you the law? Let none of you keep the law. Why are you trying to kill me? Prior to this, Jesus has just miraculously fed over 5,000 people. This multitude has been continually searching for Jesus so that they can declare him king and get more free food. Jesus is very popular with the people. It's on the heels of this popularity that Jesus' brothers tell him, If you want to leverage this popularity, this is a great time for you to go to Jerusalem and do something amazing. Jesus' brothers are not wrong. The upcoming feast in Jerusalem is the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths, Shelters, or Sukkot. This is one of the sacred assembly days when all men were required to come to the Lord's presence. So instead of doing a miracle for several thousand people way up in Galilee, Jesus could now show his power in front of tens or hundreds of thousands of people in front of the temple. The Feast of Tabernacle remembers and celebrates how God provided for Israel in the wilderness. God gave them manna and water to eat and drink. Jesus has just provided food to a great gathering of people. It matches. If Jesus feeds a multitude at the Feast of Tabernacles, then Jesus appears to be just like Moses. The brothers think Jesus should leave right then, make sure he gets to the feast on time or early, and make a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus, this is the time to show yourself to the world. But unbelievers and God have different schedules. A common phrase of or about Jesus when people try to push him into action or prevent him from doing an action is to say it was not yet his time, which is essentially what Jesus tells his brothers here. My time has not yet arrived. Jesus explains this to his unbelieving brothers in this way. We're all supposed to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. You guys can go whenever and however you want, just like everyone else. But I have a particular schedule to keep, both for the Feast of Tabernacles and for a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
Because Jesus will keep the entire covenant law, Jesus does need to go to the Feast of Tabernacles. But he also needs to later attend the Feast of Passovers. It's at Passover that Jesus will come in as king and sacrifice. Jesus' schedule is not the same as his unbelieving brothers. Eventually, Jesus does go to the feast as required by the covenant law, but he does so quietly and not with his family. Have you ever been on a different schedule than someone else? I'm finding this working on my doctorate. I'm a person who likes to get things done ahead of time. I did this during seminary, and it made my life so much easier when I went to campus for class intensives. One summer, we were on campus for two weeks. I had done all my pre-course, pre-course work for both classes ahead of time. I also worked really hard every night the first week of class. By the time we got to the second week of class, I could totally relax. I went down to the dorm common room and found my friend Bart, who had done the same work pattern as I had. We kicked back and watched the game on TV, while everyone else was upstairs writing essays. Now in my doctorate program, two weeks before my in-person class, I turned in my pre-course research paper, and I haven't gotten any feedback. My professor is out of town until the week of class. She's not on my schedule, and that's frustrating. That's the way the unbelieving are with God, and sometimes even those of us who do believe. Why is there evil in the world? Why are governments corrupt? Can't God fix that? Yes, God can, and God will, but not on my schedule, and not necessarily the way you or I would do it. Why is there suffering in the world? Can't God fix that? Yes, God can, and did, 2,000 years ago. God still fixes those things today, usually using people as his means, but when Jesus walked the earth, healing of suffering was done immediately by God. We were just all born too late to personally witness it. God's schedule is not any human schedule. It's not my personal schedule, and it's not the unbeliever's schedule. The reason Jesus and his brothers have different schedules is because unbelievers and God have different purposes. Jesus came to save the world from death and separation from God the Father. So he keeps a particular schedule to fulfill all things. Unbelievers want to see God fail. Not just fail at salvation, but fail in general. Jesus knows that the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem want to kill him. That's why he stays in Galilee and travels to the festival secretly. Whether Jesus' brothers know for sure that people are trying to kill Jesus, we can't say. But we do know that they don't believe Jesus is the promised king and savior of Israel. We also know that people in Jerusalem only speak about Jesus privately because they fear the Jewish leaders. So it is common knowledge that people are after Jesus to kill him. This means that Jesus' unbelieving brothers are setting Jesus up to fail. If Jesus goes to Jerusalem acting like a big shot, the religious leaders will take him down kill him. And in that is something that's interesting. Having the religious leaders arrest and kill Jesus is also something Jesus has on his schedule. Just not yet. 
on the surface, both the unbelieving brothers and God's purposes look the same. Jesus needs to go to Jerusalem to die. But if Jesus dies at the Feast of Tabernacles, showing off his power and trying to make himself king, Jesus fails. Jesus' purpose is not just to die, but to die as the perfect sacrifice for all people, fulfilling the old covenant between God and Israel, ratified with the blood of animals, and institute the new covenant with God and all people, ratified through his own blood. The unbeliever in God might have the same words, Jesus dies in Jerusalem, but they are an eternity apart on purpose. The Father sent Jesus to die to save the world. Jesus' brothers send him to die because they think he's a fake. The unbeliever is a long way from Jesus, yet disciples shepherd the unbelievers to Jesus. Maybe saying the unbeliever wants God to fail is too strong. That may be true for some unbelievers, but probably not all. I think it's better to say the unbeliever expects God to fail. As a teen, I heard a camp speaker talk about his time when he was a teenager at camp, before he placed faith in Jesus for salvation. At his camp, the teens were all allowed to spread out around the camp one night to have some one-on-one time to talk with God. As a teen, this speaker took a seat by the lake, and he said, God, if you want me to believe in Jesus, then let lightning strike this lake right now. Lightning didn't strike the lake. And that night, he didn't believe. Later, he realized that he never really believed that God would strike the lake with lightning. And he was just trying to force God to perform on his schedule for his purpose. The fact that God didn't perform at the whim of an unbelieving teenager actually proved who was God and who was mortal. If my purpose in life is to live my life my way for myself, then why would I believe, expect, or even want Jesus to transform my life? That's how far unbelieving is from God. This is also how I test myself in my belief. If I say I believe in Jesus for life and salvation, but I really don't expect Jesus to change anything, if my priorities haven't shifted to God's priorities, if my schedule does not follow God's schedule, then maybe I'm living in a contradiction saying I believe, yet living as an unbeliever. If I live unbelieving, then I'm a lost sheep, unable to shepherd anyone to Jesus. But if I'm a found sheep who follows the voice of the good shepherd, then I can move from being a sheep to being a shepherd. The final point I want to address is, what is the cause of this great distance between God and the unbelieving? The Bible has theological teachings about this, the results of the first human disobedience, being spiritually dead, having a mindset on the flesh instead of the spirit, the mind being in darkness instead of light, the desires and lusts of the human mind and body, spiritual forces of this world that wage war against humanity and God. I could pull up verses to support all those propositions, but today I want to distill it all down to one idea. Unbelievers in God have different authorities. The unbeliever's ultimate authority is self, and God's ultimate authority is also self, but not the human self, the God self, and 
not the human self and the God self can't both be ultimate. Thus, there's this great divide. Jesus teaches on right authority when he teaches at the Feast of Tabernacles. People are using their own insight to determine who Jesus is. Some say he's a good man. Others say he's a deceiver of people. Even his enemies say he's a learned teacher, but they can't figure out how because Jesus didn't go to their rabbinic school. Jesus answers all questions of who he is by letting everyone know who his ultimate authority is. Jesus essentially says this, I was sent by God the Father. I teach what God the Father tells me to teach. I do what God the Father tells me to do when God the Father tells me to do it. Anyone who says or does anything different is seeking their own glory, not the glory of God the Father. Then Jesus gives his proof that these unbelieving people do not hold God as their authority. All the people were at the Feast of Tabernacles because the law, the covenant given from God to Israel through Moses, says they were to be there celebrating this feast. Thus, Jesus can point out that although they claim the law of God is their ultimate authority, they actually ignore the law of God, which says, do not murder. Genesis 4, 10 through 11. Genesis 9, 5 through 6. Exodus 20, 13. Exodus 21, 25. Numbers 35, 17 through 21. Deuteronomy 5, 17. Deuteronomy 19, 11 through 13. The law says, do not murder. If this is your authority, Jesus says, why are you trying to kill me? Of course the people deny it. You're crazy, Jesus. Who's trying to kill you? But we are way past false denials at this point. Jesus has shown that they don't view God as their authority because they're not even obeying the most basic of God's commands. Do not kill other people. People murder other people that they hate or dehumanize. That does not come from God. That comes from self. Our culture is sadly in an even worse state regarding authority than the Jewish leaders Jesus confronted. At least Jewish leaders knew the Bible and recognized it was supposed to be an authority from God, even if they didn't live it out. According to a 2021 Barna Research Group study called The State of the Bible, 66% of Generation Z are not Bible users, which means they use the Bible less than three or four times per year. 91% of Gen Z do not interact with the Bible for the purpose of it having an impact on their spiritual life. One-third of Gen Z neither agreed nor disagreed that the Bible, the Koran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truths. The Bible is not authoritative above God, but God has given us the Bible to reveal himself and the way of salvation. If a person does not believe the Bible is authoritative, then they cannot believe the God described by the Bible is authoritative. This might mean, if I'm going to shepherd the unbelieving to Jesus, especially someone of a younger generation, my first tool is probably not trying to convince them with the Bible. I've seen this go wrong before, long before Generation Z even existed. I was attending a Bible study, and a man who came to the study freely admitted he didn't believe in Jesus. 
one woman went after him with John chapter 1. She wouldn't let it go because John 1 says that Jesus is God. And she couldn't hear him saying, but I don't believe that. She was so passionate because she wanted this man to experience new life in Jesus. But she was just turning him off. The pastor finally broke in and said gently and forcefully, this conversation needs to stop. Because it wasn't a conversation. It was a lecture that an unbeliever did not want to hear. Because the Bible was not his authority. I'm not saying we never bring up the Bible when talking with an unbeliever. I'm saying when I use the Bible, it needs to demonstrate how God is the authority for me. How God is doing a work in me. The immediate goal of engaging with someone who does not believe is not really to move them to belief. The immediate goal with the unbelieving person is to get them to consider belief as an option that maybe their own schedule, purpose, and authority isn't the only option out there. Disciples shepherd unbelievers to Jesus. Make sure you believe. Our prayer today is taken from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. Lord, may our witness be as steadfast as the heavens as we follow the perfect, life-renewing, trustworthy, right, reliable, enlightening, and heart-gladdening word of the Lord, so that we can find ourselves and lead others to you, our rock of redemption. Amen. May heaven's richest blessing come down on everyone who goes out, following the good and beautiful shepherd himself, to find the lost sheep and to love and care for them. For beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news.